We're studying through the Gospel of John. If you're not super familiar with the Bible, there's two testaments. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The biggest difference between the two is that Jesus came after the Old Testament was written, and then after his life and ministry on the earth, and after his, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven, the New Testament was written, which tells us how we are to apply what Jesus did on earth to our lives. In the New Testament, there's 27 books. Four of those are what we call Gospels. Gospels are simply the account of Jesus' life and ministry, death and resurrection. One of those Gospels was written by a man named John who walked very closely with Jesus. And we're studying through the Gospel of John together as a church. So we are in chapter 1, verses 35 through 51 today. Believe it or not, we're still in chapter 1. <laughs> We've been going through the Gospel of John since the beginning of September. Uh, we are picking up the pace now. We started pretty slow because of some of the content in the first few verses. But we're going to take a big chunk today in verses 35 through 51. Please follow along as I read. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following, he asked them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. He brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, Follow me. Now, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Let's pray. Jesus, we look at your word today, and specifically we consider your response to those who came to you seeking, those who came to you intrigued by what they had heard, wanting to know more, those who came to you hopeful for a Messiah, a Savior, a Christ, one who could deliver them perhaps one who could set them free. We want to look closely at your words and how you responded and consider how 
those words might apply to our lives today. So I pray that you open our hearts and open our minds and let us see you today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so you've got the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John basically is John's, not only his account of Jesus' life and what he did, but he's come to a conclusion about who Jesus is. And he doesn't keep that a secret. He tells us at the end of the book why he wrote this whole book. He says, I wrote this book. He says, Jesus did many other signs, but I wrote these down so that you might believe that he is the son of God and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. That's why John writes the gospel. He wants us to believe something about Jesus, that he is the son of God, and he wants us that to, by believing, have eternal life in his name. Those are his goals. And so we should expect, if, if that's his goal, that throughout his book, that he's going to be making the case that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's exactly what he does. So what he does is he presents a series of witnesses, eyewitnesses to Jesus, who all basically come to the same conclusion, that Jesus is the Son of God. And then he tells us about a series of miracles or signs that Jesus does to confirm to those witnesses and to everyone else that he is indeed the Son of God. And so John has presented to us his first witness, John the Baptist. Now John, the, the gospel writer, and John the Baptist are not the same person. But he's presented to us earlier in chapter 1, John the Baptist, who says this is the Son of God. In fact, at the beginning of our passage, verse 35, he says, again, this is John the Baptist in verse 35. Look, the Lamb of God. Now, we talk, I don't have, I'm not going to repeat everything I said last week about the Lamb of God, but that's very significant language. John the Baptist is making a very bold statement about Jesus. And so now John, the gospel writer, calls his next witnesses, and we meet them in this passage. We meet Andrew. Who's a wit who not only sees Jesus, but he goes and tells his brother, Simon, who becomes Peter, that we have found the Messiah. That's his testimony. Okay, so if John is calling people to the witness stand, and the next person he calls is Andrew, and, and the question is, who is Jesus? Andrew says he's the Messiah. That means he's the one that's written about all throughout the Old Testament, who is to come and who is to save his people. The next person he calls to the witness stand is Philip. Philip, of course, went, through, went to Nathaniel, and he says, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. As Greg said earlier, people for hundreds of years were longing to see this one that Moses wrote about. We're longing to see the coming of the Messiah, their Savior. Philip says, we've found the one that Moses wrote about. He's here. Nathaniel becomes the next witness to take the stand. In his statement, his testimony, his eyewitness account is that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. So here's what John the Baptist is doing. He's calling witness after witness. That's this whole book. It's a series of witnesses and signs that Jesus did to show that he's the Son of God. So what I want to focus on today is what Jesus' response is to these particular witnesses. I've broken down my structure of this message today into this. Five things Jesus says to those who are considering him. And I want to speak, speak his words to us, this modern audience. 
Because just like people were looking for a savior 2,000 years ago, people today are looking for a savior. I suspect that you came here perhaps wanting to know more about Jesus. That you came here wanting to explore the claims of Christians that Jesus is God, that Jesus can save. And so if you were to approach, if, let's say this, if Jesus were here today, what would he say to you? Well, I don't know. But I know what he said to these guys who came up to him looking for answers 2,000 years ago. And I think it's extremely helpful for us today. The first thing he says, and this is on your handout if you're choosing to follow along and take notes today. The first thing he says to those who are considering him, he says, what are you looking for? Here's what had happened. Let's look at verse 35 again. The next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this. Now, disciples are people who are following closely John the Baptist. They've committed themselves to him. They're, they're living life with him. He says, look, the Lamb of God. Those two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? I love their response. It says, they said, Rabbi, which means teacher. John is writing to a non-Jewish um, audience, and so he translates a few things here, which is helpful for us, because we don't use the word rabbi. It just means teacher. Rabbi, where are you staying? Now, I'm trying to picture, like, this conversation they're having with Jesus, maybe even the conversation they're having with each other, because here's what's going on. They're following John the Baptist, as we talked about last week, uh, set himself apart by doing some pretty strange things. The Bible tells us that he dressed in a robe made of camel's hair, which I think we collectively came to the conclusion that that probably smelled awful because I've never been near a camel that smelled anywhere near decent. So he's wearing this strange garb. He smells bad. The Bible says he lived in the wilderness. He's just kind of, he's just a, sort of a drifter out there. And he ate locusts and honey. And I think we all agreed last week that hopefully he ate the locusts dipped in honey because even though that's disgusting, that's somehow more palatable than just eating locusts in and of themselves. But nonetheless, however we look at it, he's a relatively strange guy, but he was admired and respected and people knew that he was a prophet and people knew that God was doing something significant through him. That's why all the Jewish leaders sent people to ask John who he is and what he's doing and his response is that I'm preparing the way for the one who's to come after me. And so that's what his disciples know, that John is the forerunner of somebody who's to come. Now John says, look, there he is. And so these two guys, they go after Jesus, and I bet they're really starting to question themselves the closer they get to Jesus. Because they got to be thinking, like, what are we going to say when we get there? Like, you start to, like, you get away from the situation and you start to think about maybe this isn't all that great of an idea. Like, we're going to walk up to this guy that we don't know, that we've never met, and we're going to be like, hey, we've been hanging out with this guy that lives out in the sticks and eats bugs, and he said that you're the Lamb of God. 
is that true? Like, you would really be starting to second-guess yourself on the way over there. And this comes out because Jesus says, what are you looking for? And they don't say, we're looking for the Messiah. They say, they kind of hesitate and they pause and they're like, well, uh, so, like, where are you staying, man? This is a little bit creepy. If you've ever stayed in a hotel and at the Continental Breakfast in the morning, just picked a random person and said, like, so uh, what room are you in? You understand a little bit of the awkwardness of this question, right? Where are you staying? Like, I don't know which one of these two said that. Did the other one hit him? Like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you can't say stuff like that. Where are you staying? Jesus asked this probing question. What are you looking for? Now, I don't want to make too big of a deal out of this. I don't want to over-spiritualize this question. But I think it, it, it bears a little bit of reflection here that we stop and we think, we understand that everybody who comes to Jesus is looking for something. Everybody who comes to Jesus is in search of something. If you, if you came to church today, you're here for a reason. There's something that you want. And if you're looking a little bit past even coming to church and you realize that coming to church is really about approaching Jesus and trying to get near to him and to understand him and to have a relationship uh, uh, with him, then you understand that there's something motivating that. There's something you need from him. So what is it? What are you looking for? Well, Jesus answers them. They say, where are you staying? And the next thing on the handout that you see is his response is, come and see. So people then and now come to Jesus seeking something, in need of something, and Jesus' response then and now is, come and see. Let's pick it up in verse 39. He says to them, come and you'll see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed, him with, stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. And then listen to what happens next. Because you understand when we're reading these accounts of Jesus' life that we, it's not, we're not given all of the information. We're not given every detail. At four in the afternoon, they ask him, can we come stay with you? And he invites them to. And then sometime later, let's pick it up in verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah. So something happened. They approached Jesus. Hey, where are you staying? Come and you'll see. And then something happens that causes Andrew to go to Simon, his brother, and say, look, we've found the Messiah. Maybe it was just John the Baptist's testimony. We don't know. But it seems safe to assume that there was more to this story, that Jesus did something that convinced them. I can attest to this same process in my own spiritual journey, let's say, where I knew things about Jesus, but it wasn't until I, out of my own desire, from a need that I had in my own heart, came to Jesus seeking him, that I, became, that, that I began to believe for myself that what others had said about him 
was true. When you come to Jesus and, and he plays this game and he invites you to come along, you can anticipate there'll be a point in that relationship somewhere where you go, you know, I came to you because of what other people said, but now I believe because I have seen myself. So he finds his brother Simon. He told him, we've found the Messiah, and he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, I'm in verse 42, he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So the first thing that Andrew wants to do once he meets Jesus and recognizes him for who he is, is he wants to bring somebody else to do the same. And that's, uh, uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but that's what we all should do. Like when we meet Jesus and become convinced of who he is, the natural progression is that we should want others to see. But let's, let's just stop and think about this, because what did Andrew see? He didn't just see what, where Jesus was staying, because that was never really his question. Like it's what came out of their mouths, where are you staying? But you understand that's not really what they're interested in. They, they didn't just see where he was staying, but they saw who he is. He is the Messiah. John never tells us where Jesus was staying because it's irrelevant. Sometimes the reason, sometimes the first question we ask Jesus isn't really the issue that it just sort of getting us into the conversation, and that's okay. And so, so you may have come looking for Jesus, let's say, for any number of reasons. But deep down, what you really need to come to find out is who he is. Not where he is, but who he is. So then Peter comes, and he sees Jesus too. Jesus even gives him this new name which it's not just like a nickname, it's, it's a declaration of who he's going to become. It's a declaration of what Jesus has in store for him. It's, it's Jesus is speaking to the plan that he has for him. There's nothing wrong with his old name, Simon. It's not that Jesus is just handing out nicknames. He's saying, I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. Because Cephas or Peter means rock. And a little bit later on in their relationship, Jesus is going to come back to that name that he gives him. And he's going to talk about Peter's role in establishing the church within the first century. And all of a sudden it's going to make sense. Oh, that's why you call this guy rock. Because you're going to build upon him. And so Jesus isn't just giving him a new name for the sake of a new name. He's letting him He's giving him some insight into the purpose that he has for his life. When we come to Jesus and we discover who he is, it begins to change and shape the purpose of our lives. Our identity begins to, to be transformed by our relationship with him. Our purpose in life begins to take on the shape of his purpose for us. What are you looking for, Jesus says. Then he says, come and see. And then let's not miss what he says after that because Jesus isn't just a come and see God. The next thing that he says, and you'll see this on the handout, is follow me. 
we see Jesus very strategically moving through this conversation. We see John, the, the one who recorded these words, very strategically moving through this conversation. People come searching. He says, what are you looking for? They ask a question. He says, well, come and you'll see. And now he says, follow me. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now there's, well, I, I don't, let me, get, I can come back to this maybe. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, Nathanael asked him. That's a great question. And then what does Philip do? He says, Come and see. Who is he mimicking here? Jesus. He's already picking up on this thing. Like I come to Jesus, I figure out who he is, and then I start to do the things that he does. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Philip is already picking up on this. His answer, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, now that's what's really interesting about him asking that question is, is he's about to meet Jesus. And so the last thing you want to do before meeting somebody new is insult them before you even meet them because that's sure to come up when you meet them. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I'm trying to, I don't want to get myself in trouble here. Is anybody here from Creighton before I make this next statement? All right, I won't even go there. So I'm from, uh, I'm from Catanning, many of you know that, but I'm from a part of Catanning called Wick City, and that my family goes back in Wick City, that's where my grandfather grew up. I grew up in a house about 100 yards away from uh, where my grandfather and, and his many siblings grew up, and Wick City sort of has this reputation of being, let's say, not the nicest part of town, right? And so I, I relate to this, you know, when you grow up in a place like that, you're sort of defensive, you want to defend your town and you want to defend the people that you grew up around. And so when, when um, Nathaniel here, is, he instantly insults anybody who, who, who comes out of Nazareth with this question, uh, he's about to find out the real answer. Can anything good come of Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. That's because following Jesus means doing what Jesus does. Jesus invites people to come and see. His followers invite people to come and see. Andrew tells Simon and Philip, and then, they, and then Philip tells Nathaniel. If you just read through this passage again this week and follow the progression of witnesses, the progression of evangelists, the progression of, okay, this guy met Jesus, and then he went and told this guy about Jesus. Then that guy met Jesus, and then he went and told this guy about. Follow the progression of, John wants us to see here what we're supposed to be doing. If we're going to come and see who Jesus is, the next thing that we need to do is that we need to begin to follow him. Following him means doing what he's doing. I think for the majority of people who identify themselves as Christians in, let's say, in our country, in this culture that we live in, there's no concept 
of what it means to follow Jesus. That to be a Christian is merely to believe a certain set of beliefs about God and the world and Jesus and, and all of that. It's simply to affirm with your mind that those things are true and that's where it ends. There is nobody in the Bible that validates that idea of Christianity. When people come to Jesus and believe in him, they without exception begin to follow him and do the things that he does. And we need to think of Christianity in that way. If you're going to say you're a Christian and you don't have to, you don't have to say you're a Christian. If you don't wanna identify as a Christian, that's fine. But if you're going to, if you're going to identify yourself as a Christian, then it's time that you start following Jesus the way he's always asked every believer to. What are you looking for? Well, come and see. Now follow me. The next thing he says, it gets real interesting with Nathaniel. He says, I saw you. I saw you. Verse 47, then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He identifies uh, Nathanael in a couple of ways. One, he's an Israelite. Everybody would have known that. But then he, he attests to his character in whom there is no deceit. The, I mean, just one verse before this, we've got Nathaniel going, can anything good come out of it? He's, he's doubting and he's accusing and he's criticizing Jesus's birth town. And as soon as he meets Jesus, so Nathaniel says, how do you know me? That's a valid question. How do you know me? You, you're, a test, you're testifying to my character and to my nationality. I've never met you. How do you know me? Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, we talked a couple weeks ago about Jesus's, at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And then so there's this theological concept that the, the majority of Jesus' miraculous activity is actually not out of his divine nature, but out of his human nature as a spirit-filled man. And that's a whole big thing that it, I don't know if it even benefits us to get into that today. But here there are, there's a, at least one thing throughout the book of John that I would suggest it comes from his divine nature, not his human nature as a spirit-filled man. And that is that there are several times in John's gospel where Jesus makes statements of things that he could not have possibly known as a human being alone. And this is one of them. He says, he says to Nathaniel, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I have no idea, and you have no idea what was going on under the fig tree? But as we're going to see when we get to the next section, I don't want to jump ahead. We're going to see that that statement alone radically changed Nathaniel's view of who Jesus was. That meant something to him. It struck a nerve with him. It revealed to him Jesus' true nature. For some reason, there was 
there was a situation where this guy's under a fig tree and there's no way that Jesus could have possibly seen him unless he is who he's about to say he is. But again, I don't want to get ahead. What I want to do is I want to look at Psalm 139 because Jesus didn't just see Nathaniel. He saw you. Jesus didn't just see Nathaniel under the fig tree. He saw you. Before you ever came to him, seeking him. Before you were even able to comprehend his existence, he saw you. I want to read Psalm 139. I'm just going to read about half of this psalm. Because I think it speaks to this idea, because the point... I'm trying to make here, I think without doubt, the point that Jesus is making here is that he doesn't just see us physically. He, what he's saying here is, dude, I, I know you. I know you really well. I know a lot of things about you, things that you might not want me to know about you, things that you might be happy that I know about you. All of it, I, I know you. And, and he would say that to any one of us, too. Long before we come to him, he knows us. We, we, and we see this in Psalm 130, 139. I'm going to start in verse 1. This won't be on the screen. You just listen as I read. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are, you are aware of all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. Are you starting to get the picture of how intimately God knows you? You have encircled me and you have placed your hand on me. Your wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty and I'm unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the grave, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, the light around me will be light, will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it is you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret. When I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Nathaniel, as an Israelite, would have known this psalm. He would have been aware of God's own declaration in the Old Testament that he knows us intimately well. And I think that when Jesus looked at him and he said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I think he felt the voice of God. 
there's this intimate knowledge of who we are that cannot be replicated by any single human being. The person who knows you best in this world doesn't know you like this. There aren't enough years that you can live together on earth for someone to be able to know you the way God knows you. He is aware of your thoughts. That's scary. (laughs) He is aware of your words before you speak them. The days of your life have been written down and planned before they even began. By who? By God himself. That is amazing. The psalmist says here, when when I was being formed together in my mother's womb, it was you. It was you knitting me together. How precious are your thoughts to me, he says in verse 17. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. There's not been a moment in your life from conception until now that God was not right there with you. So he meets this guy, Nathaniel, who was just busting on him a minute ago. And he says, I see you. I see you. To those of you who came looking for Jesus today and wondering what Jesus might say to you if he were standing in my place today. I don't know. I can't tell you everything he might say. But I can tell you for certain that he would say he sees you. And whether that comforts you or terrifies you, I guess largely depends on how you see him and what you believe about him. Which is the next thing that I want to say that out of these five things that Jesus says to those who are seeking him, here's the next one that, that I want to lay down, actually the last one. You will see. So Jesus begins with this probing question of what are you looking for? What do you you need? What do you want? Why are you here? Of all the things you could have done, let's let me speak to those disciples 2,000 years ago, to these two men, presumably Andrew and John, though John never identifies himself in this passage, but that's my best guess that this is Andrew and John who actually writes, who's writing these words down, right? Andrew and John or whoever they were, these two guys who, who, who come up to him. What do you need? What do you want? What are you looking for? Why, of all the things you could be doing today, why did you come to me? Why are you interested in me? Why are you here? And I'd say to all of us here today, what is it you're looking for? Why do you come to church? Why bother? Why did you get out of bed and come here today? What is it that you want from Jesus? What is it that you need from Jesus? What is it that you hope to get from Jesus? 
Well, he opens the door wide open. He says, come and you'll see. Come and you'll see. But it's a trap. Because <laughs> if you come and you see, he's going to ask you to follow. And that can be tough. That can be difficult. That can mean that you give up things. That can mean, just like Peter, who gets a, gets a new name to, to help him understand how much is going to change. Imagine if, I mean, I, I'm 39 years old. I've been called Fred my whole life. Like, if you started calling me something different, I don't know that I have the capacity to process that. Like, if nobody called me Fred anymore, but you just started calling me something else, I would, I've been Fred. That's my identity. I've been Fred my whole life. Jesus says, a lot is about to change in your life, Simon. I'm going to help you get ready for that by giving you a new name. I can honestly say if I look back to my life before I began to follow Jesus, before I came to Jesus and met him, I really do think I am a different person. And I guess that's the way it's supposed to go, that he changes us for the better, for good. He says, come and you'll see. And then if you come and you see and you stay, he says, all right, follow me. And you got some work to do. But here's the good news. With that challenge and with all of the difficulty that comes with following him is we get a Savior who sees us, who knows us, and who loves us. Loves us beyond the love that anybody else has ever loved us with. And then he says, something really cool is going to happen to you. You will see. Okay, let me get into this. Verse 49. Rabbi Nathanael replied, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Again, I, I said this earlier. When Jesus said to him, I saw you under the fig tree, that meant something to him. Guys didn't just go around saying stuff like this. Like you just wouldn't say that. If you met, we've all had this experience where you meet somebody new and you're kind of impressed with them. You think they're cool or you think they're intelligent or you think they just have this charisma about them. And, and you walk away kind of like talking about them and, and you're excited that you have met them. Like, but you don't just go, oh, he's the son of God, the king of Israel. Like you don't just throw out statements like this. What, when Jesus said, I saw you under that fig tree, it, something went off in his head. There's only one person who could say that to me. There's only one person who could have seen me. There's only one person who could know me like this. You are the son of God, king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, this is beautiful. Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. And then he said, verse 51, 
truly I tell you, now this doesn't come out in English because in English we have one word for you singular and it's the same word for you plural and it's you. I mean, sometimes we say things like yens and y'all and use guys and stuff like that. But generally in written English, we just stick with you, right? And so, but what is actually in the Greek here, he says, truly I tell you and it's you plural. So now he's, he's been speaking one-on-one with Nathaniel and now he wants everybody to know this. Everybody who's begun to gather around him and wanting to follow him, he says, I truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. What Jesus just did in a few words is he tapped into some language that they had in their culture that meant they were about to see something revealed to them from heaven. I don't know that they literally saw angels of God ascending and descending and heaven opened. I think that's just figurative language that was that in their in their culture and in their lingo meant God is now revealing something really important to you. It sort of goes back to this is because this is Old Testament language. This idea of angels ascending and descending. The other place that we see that in Scripture is uh, with Jacob, who was the father, uh, basically, of, of Israel. He has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob himself has his name changed. Again, this is like something God does sometimes. He has his name changed to Israel. And, but Jacob had this experience one time where he was traveling, and he went to sleep at night, and then he had this dream, and he saw a ladder that went up into the sky, and he saw angels of God ascending and descending. And he woke up, and what what the conclusion that he came to after seeing that in his sleep, having this vision, the conclusion that he came to was that God was in that place. He said, surely God is here and I did not know it. And he actually renames the place that that happens at to take on that meaning. He calls it Bethel. So Jesus taps into that language. He says, you're going to have, he's, 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 they would have understood this, I think. You're going to have a Jacob experience. You're going to see things that are going to cause you to understand that God is here now with you. And I think if I can just not get ahead of the gospel and not get ahead of ourselves here, I think what, God, what Jesus is saying is you're going to see me for who I am. The greater things that Nathaniel is going to see, and the things that he says now to the group of followers there with him, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which again is another, it's a loaded phrase, Son of Man, goes back to the book of Daniel and prophecies about the Messiah and all kind of, this king that's going to come and rule and, and reign. He's, he's, he's saying something that they would have understand, understood as something big is here. Something big's about to go down. What are you looking for? Jesus says, come. You'll see. You'll see who I am. You'll see what I'm about. But once you see, I'm going to expect you to follow me. But the good news is, as you follow me, is I am your creator. I'm the lover of your soul. I'm the one who made you. I know you intimately, and I love you, and I care for you. 
And as you begin to experience that, you'll see him for who he is. You will see. So let me just ask the question. I want to wrap us up here in a couple of minutes. What are you looking for? As we go through the gospel of John together and we're exposed to these witnesses and these miracles and John makes his case. He makes his case for who Jesus is and, and what he came to do, namely to, to give us life if we'll believe in his name, trust in what he did on the cross. I want you to be asking yourself this question. What am I looking for? What do I, why am I bothering with this? Why do I want to know who Jesus is? Why do I care what this book says? And if I could help you in case you're struggling with that, I think what you're looking for is what we've all been looking for from the day that we were born. To know the God who created us because it has been placed, <clears throat> has been placed in our being this longing this desire, this need to know him. If you aren't truly alive, you aren't truly who you're supposed to be. You haven't truly figured out this world until you come into the right and proper relationship that Jesus Christ of Nazareth came to have with you that's the case that john's making from his gospel if you want to live if you want to truly live not just exist not just go through the motions not just hope that you know somehow this all works out and there's something better for me at some point that you know someday i'm gonna die and 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 I don't know what happens after that, but I hope it's good. If you want something more than that, if you want to know who you are, why you're here, and who God is, you got to come to Jesus. You got to come and see. And you got to follow Him. And you got to experience for yourself that He knows you. And that he created you, that he wants you, that he loves you. And then you will see. I want to ask the worship team to come up. As I want to ask you all to close your eyes. Let's just begin to prepare our hearts for prayer. And I don't want to rush through this. I'm not in a hurry to get through prayer. Because these are important things that Jesus says in this passage. He's making statements that maybe on the surface don't seem like a lot, but if we allow ourselves to experience the truth of what he's saying here and who he's saying he is and who others are saying he is, that has life-altering implications for us. So with your eyes closed and as you just begin to reflect let me just ask you that question one more time. What are you looking for? I 
think you'll find it in Jesus. In fact, I know you will. Because I did. Andrew did. Philip did. Simon did. Nathaniel did. John the Baptist did. John the Gospel writer did. The list goes on and on and on. For the last 2,000 years, people have been approaching Jesus. Perhaps sort of like Andrew and John, they heard something that sounded good, but they weren't sure, and they really didn't even know what to say or how to ask the question. He's been receiving people just like that. Today, he invites you to come and see. Come and see the God who created you. The God who is the reason that you are here. The God that can give you life, life that lasts forever. What he calls in his word, eternal life. Would you commit the next few weeks to coming back here to hear more of this gospel, to hear more of this book? Would you perhaps even commit to reading it on your own, to opening the Bible? You can, if you don't have one, you can find it anywhere online and read the Bible for yourself. Read this book of John to explore more of who he says Jesus is. I want to invite you to that. I want to invite you to come and see, to come explore these claims. Because the next, it's going to get real good over the next few weeks as we get more into what John had to say in his gospel and the witnesses and the signs that he presents to prove, to prove beyond doubt that Jesus is who he says he is. Let's pray together. Father, as we just reflect on, on these important words and these expressions, these statements and this question that Jesus puts out there to those who come to him seeking, as we reflect on what that means for our own lives, God, would you create a hunger in us to know you, to experience you through your son Jesus, to come to believe and for these guys, it didn't take long, but maybe for some of us, that process is going to look a little bit longer. But I pray that, God, that you would just keep bringing us back to you to get to know you. To know the, the God who already knows us. Maybe the God who we've even put our foot in our mouths like Nathaniel did and said some things that we feel kind of silly about now that we see you. The God that perhaps some of us have just outright rejected. The God that some of us who, because of the pain that you've allowed to happen in our lives, we said it, it can't be true. God, would you allow our hearts to be open again to see Jesus Savior and the lover of our souls. It's in your name we pray.